Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning again. Good to see you again. We are now about halfway through, just beyond halfway through the Gospel of Mark. It has been quite a journey for the disciples, the 12, up until this point, Mark chapter 9, where we are today, for them. They have responded to the call of Jesus. If we go all the way back to the beginning, you remember Jesus said, follow me. They dropped their nets, they left their vocations, they left their families, and for uh, about three years, we're only, uh, you know, maybe halfway or or less than that through that so far, far, but for about three years, 24-7, they were his disciples, living with him and traveling with him. They have watched him heal the sick. They have watched him raise the dead, the synagogue ruler's daughter. They have watched him speak a word and calm the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. They have watched him walk on water. They've watched him feed thousands of people who were more than hungry, near starvation. They have watched him miraculously multiply loaves and fish and feed thousands of people. And they are ready for the kingdom to come. They have seen him, we have seen him week after week after week. Jesus doing these great and magnificent and glorious things. And they are ready for him to take his place in Jerusalem and to reign as king. And to make all things right. To bring 
victory and hope to the oppressed to put down the oppressors, to bring food to the hungry. They're ready for the kingdom to come. And then we come to the end of chapter 8, where for the first time, Jesus tells the disciples that he is going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. And they do not want to hear that. Remember what happened? What did Peter do? He tries to rebuke Jesus because they have been watching all of this and they are expecting the Messiah to come and to reign, to rule as king, not to suffer, not to die, not to be raised. They are confused. So all of this glorious, glorious stuff and then chapter 8 comes. The end of chapter 8 and Jesus for the first time predicts With clarity, he's going to suffer, he's going to die. Not only he, but he says, if you want to be one of my followers, you want to be a believer, you want to be a Christian, you also need to be willing to take up your cross, to to deny yourself and follow me. That's essential. That's an essential component of being one of my followers. So this massive transition here in the middle of Mark's gospel all of these miracles, all of this great stuff. And now this really hard stuff. And Jesus says, not only to the disciples, not only to the 12 that you need to be willing to suffer and take up your cross and follow me, but Mark is saying this to every reader of the gospel. He's saying it to us. If we want to be followers of Jesus, we need to deny ourselves. We need to be willing to take up whatever crosses come our way. So how do we do that? How did they do that? Well, part of the answer is in today's passage. Part of the answer of how it is we are to go through life with the trials and the sufferings that come, whether it's for righteousness' sake, whether it's because of the gospel, or whether it's just simply the providence of God and we don't understand why this is happening. Part of the answer is in today's passage. So let's turn our eyes to Mark chapter 9. Those of you that weren't here, that's why I've just summarized what's happened, this hard teaching of, of the actual gospel message that Jesus is going to suffer, die, and be raised, and that you've got to lose your life and follow me. This is what's just happened. And then there's this prophecy that Jesus makes in chapter 9 and verse 1. Look at it with me. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. So this really hard news has come, but now there's this little glimpse of hope Jesus says to the disciples who are there, some of you who are standing here right now and hearing my words, you are not going to die before you see the kingdom of God come with power. Oh, this is cool now. Now, this is what they want to hear. We want to see the kingdom of God with power. We like the power that we have been seeing in Jesus in the first seven chapters as Mark records it. That's what we want. And so now Jesus says, some of you are going to get to see a glimpse of the power of the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but I'm like, sign me up. I want to see that. I want to see that. I'm not as interested. My my gut response, my honest heart response is I'm not as interested in the denying of self and taking up the cross beam that, that... we talked about this last week, when, that imagery when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. The imagery there is picking up that cross beam that someone who is, 
who is destined to die by execution under the Roman authorities would have to carry that cross and be mocked and be suffered. This is this powerful imagery that Jesus is saying to all of us through his word. If you want to be my disciple, you need to be willing to carry that. I'm not not as interested in hearing that as I'm interested in hearing 9-1. Some of you are going to see the kingdom of God come with power. Now, this prophecy in 9-1 is fulfilled six days later. Verse 2, look at it with me. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. He was transfigured. The the Greek word there in verse 2 is uh, the verb metamorpho. Uh, you hear the English word there, metamorphosize, or how does that word go? Something like that? Is that what, what is it? Metamorphosis. This, this transformation, this transfiguration, this, this complete change of Jesus to his glorified state. After six days, he takes Peter and James and John up this mountain, and they get to see Jesus as he will soon be, after the resurrection, in this glorified state. He is transfigured before them. They get to see the kingdom of God. Now, a Jewish reader of Mark's gospel, when he reads this phrase in verse 2, after six days, and reads the rest of this passage, other things are going to come to the Jewish reader's mind as he reads Mark chapter 9. And one of those is in Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24, it says this, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, notice that, for six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. So this event on this mountain, Mount Sinai, is connected with this event happening in the, in the reader's mind who's familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. Theologians call these events theophanies, where God appears to human beings in power and in majesty and in glory. Jesus prophesied that some of you are going to get to see that. Some of you who are standing here with me, back to our text, some of you who are standing here are going to get to see it. Now, it's only Peter, James, and John who were able to see this. Now again, if you're like me, man, I, I would like to have been there. If I'm one of the other uh, 12, I'm like, why didn't I get to go up? Why didn't I get to go up and see that? Why didn't I get chosen to go up? Why didn't I get picked? Any of you relate? Any of you relate? I mean, that, that, that's how I respond to this. But, but one of the lessons we learn in life very early, an important lesson is that life is not fair. Life is not fair, and God does what he wants, and he's chosen these three leaders to come and see the kingdom and power and glory. He's chosen them. Now, it's interesting as we look back on church history that he's chosen Peter, the, the, the rock, the, the leader of the church. He's chosen James, the first one who would, who would suffer and die, martyrdom for the sake of the gospel, according to church tradition and history. And he chose John, the one who would outlive all of the others in exile on that island of Patmos. These three are chosen to see the kingdom of God with power in this tremendous event on this mountaintop. 
Look at verse 3. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. You see the author here limited with human language. He's trying to describe, Mark is, what was communicated to him by Peter, James, and John or by some intermediary. Peter, James, and John have communicated this. Mark has written it down under the inspiration of the Spirit. And you can see and feel Mark looking for words to describe something that just can't be described. The glory of the glorified Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 4, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, we're not surprised at this point that Peter's the one to speak up. Peter just, he's ready to go with his words. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Mark gives us this parenthetical comment. He's an omniscient narrator in this gospel. He says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. They're so overwhelmed with the glory of Jesus. He doesn't know what to say. But like some of us, he's not patient and he's ready to just speak. And, and, and notice a couple things here in verse 5. He calls Jesus rabbi. Now, just a few weeks ago, we saw that he recognized for the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. But he seems to have slipped away from that. And he's describing him with this more common title of rabbi or teacher. And that we have a basis for understanding that word that way here because of what he says Let's put up these three tents, these three shelters. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Again, Mark is wanting the reader to see here that Peter is not grasping the person of Jesus. That he is not like Moses in many ways. He is not, uh, he is not another giver of God's revelation. He is far beyond that. He is not like Moses. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. Jesus is not another prophet alone. It is not right to just simply have three tents for them. Jesus should be standing above, as we're going to see as we, as we move on. Look at verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. And especially the way that we should receive these words, listen to him, or listen to him about what he has just said about the gospel, about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, and about your willingness to suffer also if you're going to be one of my disciples. Listen to him. We have an authentic, authentication of who Jesus is by the Father, just like at his baptism. So these three get to witness God the Father's voice identifying Jesus as his son. Again, Mark's thesis of his gospel from 1-1 is that he is the son of God. God is verifying that again with his audible voice to these three church leaders. Look at verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So God in his providence brings this cloud. And in case you haven't gotten it yet, which they haven't, Jesus is unique. 
He is God's one and only Son. He is not a prophet. He is not only a prophet. He is not only a priest. He is not only a king. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one you are to listen to. And he is not to have a tent that is similar to Moses or Elijah's tents. This is how we are to process this text. All they can see is Jesus. He is the one we are to be focused on. He is the one they are to be focused on. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. The disciples are still confused, and they're going to be confused for some time. It's interesting, this is the last time in Mark's gospel where Jesus gives a command not to spread the gospel, not to tell others about what you have seen here. They are told specifically not to tell about this event that has happened on this mountain. We're not sure which mountain it was. People speculate which one it was, but he he took them up this mountain and they are told not to to tell until after the resurrection. Silence is ordered here to prevent Jesus from being mobbed. As as they have traveled these first eight chapters, they are constantly getting in a boat and having to go across the Sea of Galilee because Jesus' ministry is is in jeopardy of, of actually even being able to happen because the crowds are so crazy around him. He's like this supercharged magnet. And so this is the last time Once the resurrection happens, that's when you tell everyone about this seeing of the glory of God in power on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is is the time to tell everybody about it after the resurrection of Jesus. One commentator writes this, says Jesus continues to control his public self-revelation lest Israel's nationalistic expectations become an obstacle to his mission as the suffering servant. See, they're ready for him to reign. They're ready for the crowds to be around him. His transfigured glory can be properly understood only in the light of his suffering, death, and resurrection. So for a limited time, they're called not to proclaim this, not to tell of this event, not to be preaching this message until after the resurrection. So, we've gone through this passage. What does this passage have to do with our lives? How do we apply a passage like this? Again, I've kind of just revealed my heart to you. You know, I want want to have this kind of moment. I want to have this kind of experience. I, I want to be called up on the mountaintop and see a glimpse of the glorified Jesus. I want to have that experience. One of the right responses, I think, if you're like me and you have that response, I'd like to see something more, that that's our tendency, I want to see something like this, I want to experience something like this, is that the Word of God is sufficient for us. So what I want to do in our, in our last few minutes here, we have a little bit shorter message today, I want to think about how you and I 
are to respond, just as the disciples are given this glimpse of glory, the three disciples are given this glimpse of glory, you and I need to have glimpses of the glory and majesty of the new heavens, of the new earth, of the glory of God in order to make it through the trials and tribulations and difficulties and crosses that we are going to encounter in this life. So I want to say three things in general about how to apply this passage. We, you and I, need to get glimpses of the kingdom through the scriptures. We need to have the same kind of experience that Peter and James and John had through God's grace, through the workings of his Holy Spirit, and through our study of the scriptures where we have many recordings of glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth, of the glory of God. So let's, let's take a look at a couple of these passages that describe them. Let's, uh, let's move on to Revelation chapter 21. Let's, let's just take a look at this one. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us to see the glory of the kingdom of God as I read Revelation chapter 21. John writes this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men. Now the dwelling of God is with us. There is, to a certain degree, separation now in the way that we exist in this world. But that's going to change in the new heavens and the new earth. And the dwelling of God is going to be with men in a new way, in even a more powerful way than the Holy Spirit is with us now. And he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. God has given Peter, James, and John a glimpse of this glory in the shining brilliance of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he has given us his word so that we can read about this new heavens and new earth because as we are living life in this broken and messed up world, we are going to be thinking, is this all there is? I mean, I I know Jesus, I love Jesus, I experience the joy of Jesus here, but this life is still hard and this just doesn't seem right. And that is a natural and right response because there is coming a day when he comes back when all things are going to be made right and we need glimpses of this glory to make it through our lives. We need to get glimpses of the kingdom of God. We can get those glimpses in all kinds of ways. I'm saying one of the important ways that we need to get them is through passages like this and many others like them that describe what our home is like. The new heavens and the new earth, the glory of God in power. So get glimpses of the kingdom of God through Scripture. A second way to respond to this passage today is for you and I to pray. To pray thy kingdom come. Now, in Matthew chapter 6, we find what is actually rightly described as the disciples' prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it is really a template for how you and I are to pray. That is what the Lord's Prayer is. It is a template. 
whether we use those actual words or more likely that we use our own spontaneous words as a template, this is how we are called to pray. I don't have time today to go through all of that, but I, so I want to just focus on this one component of this template for how the disciples, how you and I, are called to pray. We are called to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we pray this, whether it's these actual words or whether it's our own words expressing the truth that's here on the screen in this passage, we're really praying two different things. The first thing that we're praying is we're praying that God's kingdom would come in our communities and in the local churches all over the planet right now. That we're praying that we would love one another, that we would care for one another, that we would be willing to die for one another with that kind of love to such a degree that the kingdom, in part, comes now in the lives of our community and our love for each other now on earth. This is, this is one way that we are praying when we pray this. But the other way, and perhaps the primary way that we are praying when we pray this, is we are actually praying for Jesus' return. We are praying for his kingdom to come, literally for him to come back on earth as it is in heaven and where his will will be done perfectly and sin will be gone and there will be no more tears. There'll be no more battles. There'll be no more struggles. We are praying for his return. This is, this is part of the template of how you and I are called to pray. So at this point, I'm ready for another confession because I don't pray this way very much. I don't know about you. This is how we are called to pray for the kingdom to come on earth. The very last words before the benediction in the book of Revelation, the very last words in the Bible are what? Come, Lord Jesus. So God, help us to pray this way, that we are longing for his kingdom to come, both in the small degrees that we reproduce in the way that we love each other in our communities, in our churches, but, but perhaps mostly we are praying for his return and for the new heavens and the new earth and that we would see the power of the kingdom in person and be in the presence of the Lamb of Jesus. Are you looking forward to that? There's a, a song. I'm going to play a portion of it for you. Um, by this uh, rock band, uh, U2. Have you heard of this band? A few of you maybe have. Um, they, they have a title of the song. My son and I were talking about this on the way here today. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And this, the title of the song sounds like exactly the opposite of what the song is actually saying. It sounds like these men have just not found it, and they're on this journey, and they're trying to figure out what life is, is all about. But the reality is... The song is really a, an artistic expression of really that prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're longing for the kingdom. I haven't found it. Life is hard. I, I watched a video this week as, as I was looking into this song where this, this group of men, they sang the song. Uh, they call it a gospel song with uh, a church in Harlem. And so I just want you to listen to a, a couple of the lyrics here. Go ahead and, and roll it, guys. It's just about a minute long. This is an expression of longing for the kingdom. 
song is describing is all of the colors, all of the tribes, all of the people of God coming together, bleeding into one. But I'm still running. I'm still looking for that. This life is hard. It's full of trials. It's full of tribulations. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is what they saw a glimpse of on the Mount of Transfiguration. And if we are going to make it through this life with joy and to bring glory to God, we need to live with this kind of prayer life, with this kind of expression. I've found in a small degree what I'm looking for. I've found God. I know him. I love him. He's in my life. But my life is still hard and this world is still broken. And and to a large degree, I haven't found what I'm looking for. And so come, Lord Jesus. We have to develop these longings. So how do we respond to a passage like this? We're looking for glimpses of the kingdom through Scripture. We are praying, thy kingdom come. And then third and last thing I want to say today is that we're training ourselves to long for the kingdom because as I already expressed, just bringing my own heart before you, it is not a natural thing to long for the kingdom. It is a natural thing for me to want my daughter's soccer team to win the championship. It's a natural thing for me to want to get out on my mountain bike and ride in this glorious sunshine. But it is not a natural thing for me to long for the kingdom. So we have to train ourselves and be in fellowship with one another and encourage one another to long for our home, for the kingdom of God, to look for the power of the kingdom of God as Jesus prophesied it. Back in verse 1, see the kingdom of God coming with power. We have to want this. Hebrews chapter 11 describes some of this. Those heroes of the faith, as these people were still living by faith when they died, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on the earth. We need to be admitting that. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, a city of God. This is what he's prepared for us. And so, Lord, help me, help us as a church family to long for the city of God. To a degree, we have glimpses of it here and how we relate to one another, but help us to long for it. This is how we respond to this passage today. We have to train ourselves to long for the kingdom. As we do, joy and satisfaction, a willingness to bear crosses joyfully, a willingness to deny our selfish selves for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ come. Let me read to you a little bit of what C.S. Lewis has to say about training ourselves to long for the kingdom, to long for the new heavens and the new earth, to long for heaven. Let me read to you a fairly lengthy passage. Just listen to this from, uh, from mere Christianity. He says, most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. Uh, that, that, that part we get. He goes on, one reason for this difficulty is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it. Most people, 
if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, for me, Switzerland, or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings, our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or unsuccessful holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. Do you follow what I'm here? He's saying, I'm talking about when you have these dreams of this great thing and then you actually experience that great thing, it doesn't satisfy your longing. He goes on, there was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may have been a very exciting job or vocation, but something has evaded us. There's something we're still longing for. There's something that we haven't found yet. There is a kingdom, a new heavens, and a new earth that we need to be longing for. We have to have these glimpses of glory to actually long for it. He goes on. Read you one other passage. He says this. C.S. Lewis writes, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage." I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death or until Jesus comes back. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. This is how we respond to today's passage. Lord, give us glimpses of the kingdom, through your word, through scriptures. Help us to pray your kingdom come and train us to have those longings for the new heavens and the new earth. Let's bow our heads right now and ask God to help us to respond to his word in this way. Father in heaven, we have another time of confession right now as I think about the template that you've given us to pray in Mark, in Matthew chapter 6 that we are not often praying that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are not often praying, Lord Jesus, come soon. We are not often longing for the power of the glory of God to exist in this new heavens and new earth and for us to be there. 
So, Lord, help us as we find our way in this life to develop those longings. We're thankful that you gave Peter and James and John a glimpse of this glory. We're thankful that they communicated that to others and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, this has been written down in the Word. And Lord, we we ask, even though we haven't had this experience, that you would give us the same heart and the same response that they eventually got to, these disciples did, to where they are willing to lay down their lives for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. May we be like that for your glory and full of joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.